Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. Last week, whether we knew it or not, we finished the book of what? The, the Parsha was Behar Bechukotai. The book was Leviticus. Which means we are beginning this week the book of Numbers. And we are in the first triennial Parsha, right? We're in the first third of every Parsha. So this should be fairly simple for you to figure out where in your Bible we are. It should be. It should be. Right? If we're in the first third of every Torah portion, and we're starting the book of Numbers, Numbers 1-1. All right, David Russo, you get the gold star. So we're joining our folk in the Midbar. We're in the wilderness. Yes? Yes. Yes. Bella says yes. Then I know I'm right. We're in the Midbar. So the, the Hebrew, the Hebrew name for this book, Bamidbar, in the wilderness. What is it in English? Numbers. Why is it numbers in English? Because we are counting. So we have, the first thing that's going to happen is a census. Yeah? And we're going to have several sensei, sensei, censuses to begin the book of Bamidbar. So the, the setting is the wilderness, but it's not just the setting meaning, okay, well, we're still there. We were, we were there at the end of the book of Exodus. And then the book of Leviticus gets inserted, right? So we have Genesis, Exodus, suspend the narrative. Right, stop talking about what's happening, and we get the priestly manual. We get Leviticus. So narrative, narrative, Genesis narrative of our, the particulars of our family, our clan, our tribal beginnings, to now the book of Exodus, which is the story of the people as they right, evolve from being slaves in Egypt to being redeemed from slavery and crossing the sea. Right? All of these narratives move linearly. They move forward. Each week we get a new installment and right and the story unfolds. Until we get Leviticus dropped in there. Right? So Leviticus is plopped in there as the priestly manual. So we've just finished that. So now we come to the book of Numbers. Nothing about the book of Numbers is going to be linear. Nothing about this. We are in the Midbar. We are in the place where there are no signposts. There are no landmarks. There's nothing familiar. There's no directions, right? Presumably they're going from where they are, where they've crossed the sea. They're going from there to the promised land. That's the idea, right? That is not a long trip. That is not a very long trip. How long is it going to take them? 40 years. Right now, they don't know this. Right in our narrative, we don't know this yet. But we, but we who read the book every year, right? We've been here a few times. We know what's going to happen. We know that these folk are not going to take the journey right now from where they are directly to the promised land because they mess it up. Right? They mess it up so many times that finally God seems to understand. It seems God learns that this people that was redeemed from slavery is not capable of thinking in the ways that is required to build something new. To build a reality that's different than the one that they've experienced. Different than the trauma that they've known. Different than the trauma and powerlessness that they have learned in slavery. They are unable to shake that and to to keep faith in something bigger, something that they've seen work through their lives. They saw the sea split, right? If we just place ourselves willing suspension of disbelief, it doesn't matter if it happened, right? We, we're talking about our mythic history. If we place ourselves in our mythic history and in the shoes, well, the, the sandals of the folks in the story, they've seen this force work through their lives. They've seen it split. A, they've seen it brought plagues. They saw it split the sea, right? It feeds them manna in the desert, right? There's no reason to doubt that they are related to and protected by the greatest force there is in the universe. And they can't do it. 
time after time after time in this book. We're going to see their doubt, their fear, their cynicism, their whatever you want to call it. And they keep saying they want to go back to Egypt. So this book is not going to unfold in a linear fashion. This is where they keep coming back through. They're going to keep coming back through familiar places. And we see lots of doublets in the book of Numbers. Lots of times where we see the story told twice, two different ways. We're going to see quail, the story of quail twice. We're going to see the story of a rock. Do you hit the rock? Do you talk to the rock? Right? We're going to see these, these doublets of stories. Um, so things keep circling you know, around and twisting back on itself. So we're coming out of Leviticus. Tell me, tell me Leviticus's worldview in terms of if you do X, things will be Y. Just if you had to sum up Leviticus. What is Leviticus's worldview? How does it approach the world? Yes, David. You know, I'm not sure this is it that you're driving at, but I was just telling George on the way over. I was struck with the lesson two weeks ago about the fact that Leviticus tells us that we're just tenants here. That this is all God's. And when he says, this is how I want it done, this is how he wants it done. That's right. So, so Leviticus says, if we act with what what would we put in the blank to to get to maybe to your point if we act with what order if we follow the rules if we follow the instructions if we do everything exactly meduyak exactly as it's supposed to be done then what reward then there's reward then everything's going to be okay right and there's punishment then all is okay all right so very, very much about order, right? The priestly, the priestly worldview is one where if one thing is out of place, one thing isn't done exactly correctly, what happens, right? It, we see what happens. Not of you. What happened with not of you? Exactly, right? That nuclear force that we're toying with, that we're in relationship to, that we're tampering with, in a, hopefully in a good way, if we deal with it unmitigated, we know it's going to be a disaster. It's just too powerful, and we have to be very careful with how we deal with this force. Is this Leviticus where God now asserts his authority? Really? Says, hey, this is not an obtuse concept. I am. I think we could read I am Adonai Yudhei your God. I think we could read that as a warning label. Right? right? Like, how do we know not to go? I mean, I just had a MRI, right? And um, and like, there, I look up and there's this little label, like with the little sign that makes us really should make us really nervous, right? And it's the sign for right, like. Nuclear, right? Like radiation. Don't come near this machine, right? Unprotected, right? Because as I lay there, right, going into it. Um, but that label is you're dealing with a very, very powerful force. I was experiencing it for the good, right? That powerful force is going to help me. But the radi, the technician, if they keep coming into contact with that force unprotected, what's going to happen? They're going to die of cancer. That's a warning label. I am yud hey vav hey. I am radioactivity. Now, deal, deal with it correctly, and good things happen. We have a diagnosis. We have treatment. We have you get better, right? But come into contact with it in a way that you're not... I don't want to just use the word protected. Following the rules of the way that you're going to jeopardize your own will, huh? Life. You have to be present. You have to be present to to what that is. And if you don't know, ask somebody. When you see that symbol, right? If you don't know, ask. Because not having to be who, what does one of the commentators say about why they got zapped? Why they blew up? They didn't ask. They didn't ask. That they brought, they were all enthusiastic and brought their their new offering that wasn't prescribed, and right, they didn't ask Aaron or Moshe 
for instruction. Yeah. We still say ignorance of the law is no excuse. Right. Well, be- because ignorance of how fast I'm supposed to be driving in certain re- weather conditions is not going to save me when the car spins out, Jonas, Claire. <laughs> um, right? Like, it, you have to know how to handle the Ca- the car and the power you have to know how to handle the power because you our instinct is slam on the brake which is of course the worst thing you can do um, but you have to know how to handle that power or else it's incredibly dangerous right. so that's that's Leviticus's worldview like you if, so it's kind of like if we can just keep order if we can just do what we're supposed to do and just keep doing it right and just follow all the rules and it's all going to be okay and you would think okay so now we're done story ends <laughs> but we're Jews uh, and it turns out that just following the rules and just having order and just knowing what to do and just getting the instruction and just doing it is not quite that simple. That's just not life. Life is what we're going to see right now. Right? It's going to start with Bamibar in the book of Numbers. Okay. That's a good question. That's a very good question. In other words, so... so mm-hmm. Usually we have problems, and then you're given a solution. You read a paper that's uh, uh, the, the questions and then the answers. Here you have the answers first, and then all of the ways that you know you should have been applying this. You know what the that was. Well, maybe it's maybe so to your point that. We can't be expected to follow the rules if we haven't been given the rules, right? So maybe Leviticus precedes Numbers because they had the rules, right? They've been given the instruction, and I'm going to tell you what that means, and I'm going to tell you how to protect yourself. You want this force here because that's what's going to keep you safe, right? Uh, God in their midst. And right here are all the ways you need to deal with that. And then here's what happens, right? we We get given the instruction, and here's a story of what we did or didn't do with that. So maybe you just answered your own question really beautifully. All right. Uh, so before we get started, so Jonas is having his bar mitzvah tomorrow. And so his parents uh, believe it's very important for both of their children. And his older sister, Claire, is here from college uh, for the bar mitzvah. So here from Canada. Uh, and so they're, the parents feel like it's very important, Kathleen and Lisa, that their children be connected to Torah and that their bar and bat mitzvah were not just about celebrating them, um, but that they understand the responsibilities to take on uh, learning and living a life of Torah. So for their bar and bat mitzvah Fridays, they are here always for Torah study. All right. Uh, let's have, who wants to read? Maybe. Oh. Are we starting on? One, one. On the first day of the second month, in the second year, following the exodus from the land of Egypt, Adonai spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tent of meeting, saying, Take a census of the whole Israelite company. Look across from the Hebrew. Yeah, go this way. The whole Israelite company. Oh, here we go. Yeah. Of fighters, in brackets. By the clans of its ancestral houses, listing of the names, every male, head by head. You and Aaron shall record that by their groups, from the age of 20 years up, all those in Israel who are able to bear arms. Associated with you shall be a representative of each tribe, each one the head of his ancestral house. These are the names of the representatives who shall assist you. From Reuben, Elazar, son of Shador. From Simeon, Shulimiel, son of Zerushadai. From Judah, Nachshon, son of Aminadab. From Issachar, Netanel, son of Zuar. From Zebulun, Eliab, son of Chelon. From the sons of Joseph. From Ephraim, Elishema, son of Amihud. From Menashe, Gamliel, son of Pedazur, whatever. From Benjamin, Abidan, son of Gidoni. From Dan, Achizer, son of Amishadai. From Asher, Pagiel, son of Ochran. From God, Eliasaf, son of Deuel from Naphtali, Ahira, son of Enan, Gokhalair, 16. Those are the elective of the assembly, the chieftains of their ancestral tribes. They are the heads of the contingents of Israel. Okay. So this is the first thing we're getting in the book of Bamidbar. We are in the second, well, in the first day of the second month of the second year following the Exodus, and God orders Moshe 
to take a census. Verse 2, Rita. What is the actual Hebrew used here? It doesn't say take a census. What does it say in Hebrew, verse 2? Se'uet rosh means like count the heads. What does se'u mean? Yes, the English is going to tell you count. What does se'u actually mean? Ah, yes. <laughs> Love that. She remembers. Yes. Lift up the head. Call a Israel. Lift up the head of every member of Adat Israel, the community of Israel. Is that what's going to happen? No. It's going to be every male, right? That we're going to count here. Why are we counting the males? Because they wrote this. Thank you, Susan, for that um, insight. Yes. And particularly why in the text are we counting the males here? Yes. This is a muster. Right? All men who can bear arms. This is a military campaign. We forget that. We know the book. We know the story. So we know we're starting 40 years of wandering in the Midbar. That is not where they are. They are getting ready to conquer and take the promised land. So this is a military operation. The whole scouts thing, the whole thing with the scouts, that's because this is military. They have to scout the terrain. They have to scout the situation. Or you're, I mean, you're not, yes, God's going to fight on your side, but don't be stupid, right? You have to do, right, your due diligence as well. So this is military. They have to know how many people they have who can bear arms. Okay. So we have to count them. And so that is from, right, age of 20 and up. And then we have the heads of all of the tribes who are going to assist in the muster. What does that do? What does having a head of each tribe do, helping with the muster? It unites everybody. So they're having to opt in, right? You take responsibility for how many people from Zvulun we have, right? It's on you, Mr. Ancestral Leader, right? So that everybody has to has to buy in. Each tribe has to buy into the campaign and take responsibility for their tribe participating in the military campaign. Se'u et rosh kol Israel. Let's remember this phrase, right? Um, and let's skip this next part because it's going to give us all of the totals, right, for each of the tribes. And let's go to chapter 2. Moshe is told to skip counting Levi. Why are we skipping counting Levi? They have other responsibilities. What is their responsibility going to be? The tabernacle, the mishkan. Right? So Levi doesn't get counted in bearing arms because Levi's going to have their own thing going on. Right? All right. So let's go to chapter 2. Claire. All right. God spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Israelites shall camp each man with his standard under the banners of their ancestral house. They shall camp around the tent of meeting at a distance. Camp on the front or east side, the standard division of Judah, troop by troop. Chieftain of the Judites, national son of Aminadab, his troop as enrolled, 74,600. Camping next to it, the tribe of Issachar. Chieftain of the Isaacites, Nathaniel, son of Zoar, his troop as enrolled, 54,400. Tribe of Zebulun, Chieftain of the Zebulunites, Eliab, son of Helo. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter. His troop as enrolled, 57,400. The total enrolled in the division of Judah, 186,400 for all troops. 
All right, so we're going to get this repeated for all four sides, right? Um, so we have that everyone shall camp under their degel. Everyone is supposed to be under their own degel, under their own flag, under their own banner. Yes? Do we have actual evidence of the individual banners? Or is this just... <laughs> where where would we have the evidence? I don't know. I don't know. Where would evidence be of flags? Yeah. Right. The all anything like that would be gone. Um, so this this is our evidence that 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 these were the tribal banners, right? That that that's what we have. It's a lot of people. How do we get so many people at this point? Well, okay. So let's go back to our conversation about sacrifice. <laughs> what do we say about sacrifice and the system that we have put forward in Leviticus? What, what do we know about the numbers of those animals? Impossible. It's not going to work. Impossible. So this is, this is mythology, right? Um, that's one interpretation. It's mythology, and so everything is... But, you know, exaggerated. Um, but the other answer, I was just interviewed for this week's Parsha from uh, Shmuel Rosner, the journalist. He has a weekly series that he does from Israel. He's in Israel uh, now. Uh, he's Israeli. Um, but he's, a, he's an amazing journalist. But he um, interviewed me for this week's Parsha. And one of the things he asks me is, are these numbers, what, what can we, what do we know about these numbers? How realistic is this? Do we have any evidence? Like, what do we know about the? We, there's no evidence, first of all, that there was ever a huge population crossing the desert, living in the desert, right? But, but of course, we could say such evidence wouldn't survive anyway. Um, but there's very little evidence of a conquest. <laughs> so, if there's no evidence of a conquest, there's little evidence for right the the army that moved through the desert to to perform the conquest, I mean, to achieve the conquest, um, right? Israel was conquered from within by, right, at different times in different places. It was not like one big campaign that pushed in and took over. There's no material changeover in the, in the, um, there's no change in the material culture of the land of Israel. Let's put it that way. Does that make sense? If you have an invading force, an invading army that takes over a country and moves in and uproots all the other people or converts them to this new culture, you have a change in pottery. You have a change in what the pottery looks like. You have a change in what the art and the artifacts that you find look like. You have evidence of burning, you know, villages burning. You have that evidence in the archaeological record. We don't have that. Um, and there's no material culture change in the land of Israel. So what does that say? That says that the change, the, Isra- the emergence of the Israelite culture comes from within Canaan. Does that make sense? So there is no group that's foreign that schleps across the desert and comes in and conquers and takes over and changes what's happening to their culture. It completely emerges from within Canaanite culture. So there's no conquer. Correct. So probably there were there was a group that has some kind of influence and is a different culture right than the Canaanites living there. Absolutely we believe that's probably true. That there's an influence on some group that's in power enough to start taking cities, right? And and there are skirmishes and there are battles and there are whatever. So as these people, you know, emerge and take over. But it's not a conquest. It is, a, it is from within Canaan that the early Israelites emerge. Okay? So what is... So, so going back to your question, so how do we translate um, Eleph? When we say 57,000, we're saying 57 Eleph. Rita, what does Eleph mean? I thought it meant thousand. You thought it meant thousand. <laughs> so Eleph, if it means thousand, and we say there are 57 Eleph, then we're saying there are 57,000. What if LF instead means a unit? There are places that we see LF mean a military unit. If that's the case, a military unit is far smaller than a thousand people. How, what's a unit, y'all who know this stuff? George, what's a unit? Yeah, in the army. Twelve people. Okay. Now, that makes much more 
sense, right? If you say 75 units of 12, that, that makes a lot more sense, right? I can number 600,000 coming from Egypt. Is that, is that Good memory. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> George, like, here? <laughs> yes, here. Yes. But this is only on the east side. Uh, no, no, the total. The total that we get is going to be 600,000 something. <laughs> yes? Yes? Elena? The in Canaan was crumbling, and so the, they were collapsing, and the I love Elena's revisionist history, um, but but yes, yeah, some that's how some scholars see it, right? Is that the, the Canaanite landlords are oppressing the serfs? I mean, I'm using medieval European language. I know, I get it. It's anachronistic. I get it. But just work with me because we know those those terms, right? So the landlords, the nobility, if you will, are oppressing the serfs to the point that they are. Right? They're edgy enough, they're angry enough, they're suffering enough that a group that comes in with a story about having been oppressed and escaping that oppression resonates. That is the group that begins to have influence, right? Early, early, early Israelite, right? Narrative. The serfs buy that narrative. We like that story, don't we? Of overthrowing the powers that be, right? And we become free and we live into the values of this invisible God who's on our side, right? It's not their God versus our God anymore. What, it, right? This idea of monotheism. Remember, early, early, early monotheism, not pure monotheism. Early monotheism. There are still other gods, but we have one. We only have one, but there, there could be lots of others. That idea becomes is attractive to these serfs. And as this other group starts to take more control, and as those serfs are liberated because their Canaanite nobility is overthrown, this becomes their story. The story of the liberation from Egypt becomes their story. And that is how we have Canaan, right? The Canaanites become Israelites. Yeah? And adopt this narrative, adopt this story. Because it resonates. The same way it does for us. Did the Canaanites care? Did it really happen? Like, you know, th th that's the story that they wanted to, to live into. Basically, it makes a lot more sense. And it, it makes, yeah. yeah. Alright. Each under their own degel. So we're supposed to have we're supposed to have diversity, right? They're not supposed to be just one big old honking 600,000 mass group. That is not the point. Each under their own degel, each by their ancestral house. We are supposed to have our attachments to our history, to our people, to our family, to the way we do things, to do you like light matzo balls or sinkers, right? The, these are important distinctions. It's what we know. It's what we find familiar. It's what we grow up with. Those are critically important. Each under their own banner of their ancestral house. It also helps create cohesion in the army also because you, know, you will you'll fight for the death for your brother. You won't necessarily fight to the death for somebody way on out there who you don't even know. So you're saying camping by yeah, ancestral camping, house. Camping under your flag. And moving out under your flag. Yeah. Beautiful. So it's it's a way to loyalty, right? You're going to fight harder to protect the people you know. Okay? Um, so they're they're all camped under their ancestral houses, but the point is they are one machaneh. They are one camp. And what is at the center of that camp? The Mishkan. The tabernacle. That is what is at the center. And they all face the center. Right? They're going to turn outward and line up to march when they're on the move. But when they're not... They are camped each under their own degel. We are supposed to be diverse. We are supposed to have differences. We're supposed to be unique. And we are all facing the Mishkan. We are facing the tabernacle. We are facing God's presence at the center. And we have our sanctuary with the 12 tribes named and the Ark of the Middle. 
Well, the ark is kind of on the wall, but we won't get technical. But um, right, and if you look up here, right, look up here at these windows, right, you'll notice the colors, right. So these are the twelve tribes up here, as well as on the inside of the star in the in the sanctuary, the inside of the star, each each triangle is painted a different color, right, to represent again the. 12 tribes. And just describe which gems were on the shields of each of the tribes, and that's where we got all of this. Correct. So the where we have in the book we just read, what was that, of Leviticus, um, the description of the breastplate of the high priest with the 12 tribes, each with a different color stone. We have that described, so artists render their understanding of what the stone is. We're not always sure. We're pretty sure about lapis, but we're not sure about some of the other stones that get named, what their color is, but we won't talk about that. problems, we took the stones and matched them to the paints. It's the translation problem. Right, that, that's right. Okay. So, yes, yes, Claire. So why do you think this circular, like a circular style that is so important to Judaism was lost in Ashkenazi style synagogues? Circular meaning? Like, like around, the kind of, like with the most important thing being in the center. Like, because in Europe, a lot of the synagogues there are more straight. Almost like church. So, so some of it would be the cultural influences yeah. on the people building those synagogues, right? So, if you live in a land of cathedrals, churches, right, one might be influenced to also want one's um, holy place to be as dignified because that's the qualification for dignified yeah. at that time in that place. So, some of it is the influence of that. Um, I think. To your point about them all camped around the Mishkan, I think what happens in rabbinic Judaism is a focus on certain people as having more authority. As it shifts to people interpreting the law, because they move from the temple being the central place of worship, right? The cult falls, the cult is destroyed in in um, 70 of the Common Era. when the What happened? 70? What happened? Temple. Thank you. Destruction of the temple. When the t- second temple is destroyed, the biblical cult is obliterated. All of this is obliterated. It's gone. So your instinct is, okay, something happened, right? That's what happened. So this gets completely gone. We should be gone. We shouldn't exist. Because once this gets gone, you don't have... Israelite religion, mm-hmm. right? There's no sacrifice, there's no priesthood, there's no Levites, there's no Mishkan, there's no temple, there's no nothing left of this. What gets left of this? Halacha. The rabbis take this and say, okay, but there's still certain things that we can do from here. There's, there's still things we're commanded to do in here that are still God's binding will for us as the Jewish people. That's how we survived. The rabbis, right? had already been in opposition to the priesthood, remember? The rabbis already were unhappy with the priests, so they were already doing their own thing. The priests are destroyed, and so the rabbis who are in other places now are the authorities. So as soon as you become the interpreter of what God wants, you now have a different kind of authority than even the priests had, right? And so, I mean, this is all just... Conjecture. This is all at the top of my head. Um, and so the people who know how to read that text and the people who interpret that text are at the front. Mm-hmm. And they're... The reason KI is built the way it is is to counter that message. So you may or may not know that um, we don't... They keep saying, well, we have a bima. Like, the bima, come up to the bima, and someone pointed out, an Israeli, of course, uh, pointed out to me, it's called bima, from bama. I'm like, yes, high place, I understand. Bima, a high place. I'm like, yes, I understand the word. It's not high. (laughs) You don't come up to the bima, you come down to the bima. Right, (laughs) so... um, so, so Israeli. So, um, so it looks like we don't have a bima, right? The people come down to Torah, but if you pay attention to the slope of the floor coming from the foyer, the floor gently slopes up. That was on purpose. It's not how the land was. They sloped the floor so that everybody who comes into the sanctuary comes onto the bima. You come up from the foyer 
to the bima, and everyone in our community is on the bima, mm-hmm. and are higher, sitting higher than the authority yeah. in the room, right? So it's to exactly counter what is exactly your intuitive point that there was a shift away from this yeah. that at least people here in progressive Judaism wanted to get back to. Sephardic synagogues yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so we were talking about Ashkenaz, oh. about the influence on Ashkenaz. Um, and some of the old Polish synagogues are circular too. Mm-hmm. So it also depends what it is. What if you know if it's a Beit Midrash, they were all circular. Everybody's sitting all around, right? A small Beit Midrash, which is mostly where people were in small villages, they didn't have big synagogues. They were everybody was sitting around, and you put your books down, you put your Talmud down. Now it's time to, to daven. You pick up your sidur and you start to daven. There wasn't a synagogue. You just it was a meeting house. It was a base midrash. It was a house of study, and you ate there, and they slept there, and you daven there, and you know, but for places that built, you know, synagogues. And this place came from meeting house in Portugal. So this is from a Beit midrash, and it actually used to hold candles, and it had been electrified uh, to serve as a ner tamid. Okay. Le- what time is it? Oh my gosh, how do we get this late always? Um, so now we're going to, uh, let's just look quickly at um, what happens for Levi. Look at chapter 3, verse 11. Oh, sorry, verse 5. Chapter 3, verse 5. Lisa, can you hit the air, please? Sure. Thank you. It's 76 degrees in here. I can read it from here. All right, for those of you who freeze, just hang on. It'll, it'll be cold for a minute, and then we'll turn it off, I swear. God spoke to Moses, saying, Advance to the tribe of Levi, and please its men, in attendance upon Aaron, the priest to serve him. They shall perform duties for him and for the whole community before the tent of meeting, doing the work of the tabernacle. They shall take charge of all the furnishings of the tent of meeting, a duty on behalf of the Israelites, doing the work of the tabernacle. You shall assign the Levites to Aaron and to his sons. They are formally assigned to him from among the Israelites. You shall make Aaron and his sons responsible for observing their priestly duties. And any outsider who encroaches shall be put to death. All right, so who is it on? Who's encroachment on? Aaron and and his sons. They take responsibility for encroachment, right? Bad, 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 right? If there is encroachment on the sancta. All right, 11. Oh, Claire. God spoke to Moses saying, I hereby take the Levites from among the Israelites in place of all the male firstborn, the first issue of the womb among the Israelites. The Levites shall be mine. For every male firstborn is mine. At the time that I smote every male firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated every male firstborn in Israel, human and beast, to myself to be mine, God's. All right, so... Here we're getting, here we're getting the swap, right? So the firstborn are to serve God because of what happened in Egypt, the slaying of the firstborn, and the Israelites, right, were spared. So every firstborn belongs to God, and the that's from everything that's living, right? Peter rechem, everything that opens the womb belongs to God. Also with fruit, everything. But God doesn't want them. Right? It's like the Israeli army, right? There's, what do you call it, when everybody has to serve? I would, conscription sounds so Cossacky. Um, draft, thank you. So there's a draft, right, in Israel. So everybody has to serve. But there's a real conversation in Israel about is that the best plan? Right? Like maybe everyone should serve, but maybe not everybody should be in the military. Like maybe there should be civil service as well because it's a lot to take and train people who don't have zero talent for the military. Right? It's a lot to deal with them. Like, better put them to use doing what they do well and do best. My host sister taught um, Ethiopians how to read English. Part of her mandatory army service. And was she orthodox? No. So she wasn't a religious exemption? No. This was just, they're using her skills. Yeah. She just sucked at everything else. <laughs> Got it. Um, so, so that is a real conversation. And so God seems to be saying, I, your firstborn belong to me, but I'm not interested in them, right? I want a professional 
I want people who are raised to do this. I want people who are trained from birth who know what they're doing and like it's going to be this clan and they will sub for your firstborn. Right? And so that is what happens. We get the redemption of the firstborn. The PDO, right? We still have the remnants of PDO and Haben. Yeah? Oh, it's so always good to see Elvina because it means everything's going to be okay. As soon as we see Elvina, everything's going to be okay. <laughs> Our amazing facilities manager. Thank you, Elvina. Yes, Rita. Oh, so just to add what Claire said, uh, they do uh, like IQ tests and they take some people who are really smart and put them like in computer fancy intelligence work also. Not orthodox, I'm talking about regular people. Right. To, well, to, right, and I don't mean to. <laughs> <laughs> Bert, Bert will edit that out of the podcast. It's okay. Um, right, and so I don't mean to suggest the Israeli army doesn't use its people well. What I mean is that they, there's a real challenge to integrate people who really are not terribly useful right into your into your force and to train them and to deal with them. And so you know, I think it's a similar thing here where it's like what God says, I I, I know your firstborn belongs to me, but I have a plan to. Right to swap it out, right in a way that Levi will only be about service. The whole tribe, they're only about service to the Mishkan and service to the divine. All right, you've got Aviva Zorenberg in front of you, yeah. So tur- turn it to the side that says page ten and eleven. All right, so drop to uh, the paragraph presence and absence on page 11. When we're going to get this, I mean, we didn't see it because we didn't spend time on that verse, but we're going to get um, the word that's used to Moshe to count the people is pay, kuf, dalid, pakad. Pakad. So we have this, where do we see this word in our liturgy? You know this word from God. Pakads who? God pakads Sarah. Remember. Ah. Ahaha. Because what remember is what word? Zazocher, right? So this isn't zocher, this isn't remember, it's takes notice. Pakad, take notice, but in a way that seems to have good connotations. If God pakads you, it's good. There are other things if God takes notice of you, there are verbs that are used, and that is not good, right? <laughs> At all. So, but pakad seems to be one of those words that's, that has positive implications. So this is the word that's used also for counting. So if we translate count as having to do something with pakad, what, why? Why would we, how could pakad come to mean count? In what way? Ah, you're noted. You matter. This is a very important point, that this is the word used for counting. Because the opposite of this is what we see in the Holocaust. Because there's, there's lots of ways to talk about people and numbers, people and counting. One is to use it to dehumanize. Yes, is to say... You are only a number. You are designated by what we call you and what we say you are, and you are just one in a serial list, and you're the next one on that list because you're the next number. Torah does not use that word. Torah uses the word pakad. Take note of each person because they matter. But what's interesting is this word also in modern Hebrew... Do you know this word, Rita? Yeah, it means like a role. Aha, beautiful. Tafkid means a role. Now talk to me. A role like an actor's role, not like a role of like a list of names. A role like a job. Okay, yeah. We, we each have our role. Each have our own job. purpose. Our own job. Yeah. These are related. If I count, if I'm noticed, if I matter... Then there's there's something for there's there's a role for me. I'm necessary. I'm necessary. 
Is there a different word if you were to come to apples? Yes, lispor. Okay. So this is uniquely for people. I don't know that. I, I, I honestly don't know, but but it's important. I think that Torah uses this word when counting people. Does that make sense? Um, yes. So could you make the argument then that the use of the word "pachad" sort of uh, preconditions an ethical point of view where? where that ultimately leads to assertions like saving a single life is like saving the whole world because if everyone counts, everyone's worth saving. Beautiful. Yes. I think absolutely yes. That, yes, it leads, it is indicative of an ethical stance and instructive to the Israelites that careful, because what happens when the Israelites count and they're not told by God to count? It's bad. It's it's really really bad. It's really bad. Like yeah, like David. I think it's David who count, who takes a census and is not told by God to take a census, and it's like it's really bad, right? So because it seems if it's not this, right? So there seems to be something about if God commands it, then it is a taking note, then it is a you matter, then it is everyone has their role, and then we need to figure out. How many? If you're just counting, you're doing what the numbers. Do. Then, then it can like. Yeah. I mean, this is my interpretation, but I think it's saying you don't get to do that. Yeah, right. You can do pacotting, <laughs> right? But not numberizing right. people, right? Um, and when you play God, you don't get to play God. God says count because God means pacad the people. But if you're going to do God stuff that has to do with numbers and people, it's really, really bad. All right, so let's go to Zorenberg. It is striking that the word pakad, you see that paragraph, bottom of page 11? It is striking that the word pakad, which is used some 20 times to refer to the act of registering in the census, generates a larger field of meaning that includes paying attention, appointing, visiting, seeking, desiring, being interested, as well as depositing, committing, and trusting. At the same time, pakad refers to absence. It attends to a loss. For example, after the battle against the Midianites at the end of the book of the Pikudim, that's what this book is also called by the rabbis, the book of Pikudim, the countings, the censuses, uh, those appointed to make the count of the survivors report to Moses, quote, your servants have made a check of the warriors in our charge and not one of them is Nifkad. Right? All you do is you add this nun. If you add the nun to the beginning of Pakad, what does the nun do? What does Nifal do? Rita, what does Nifal do? It, it's the passive. Not one of them is Nifkad. Not, and, it, and when you put this in the passive, when you put it in Nifal, apparently, right, it becomes missing. Not one, beautiful, not one is not pakadid. So not pakadid is nifkad. Right? So not one, not one is not accounted for. Everyone matters. So, but what we're saying with the negative, because it's, it's no one's missing, but it's the same show rash as counting. This is the same, what, what Zornberg in her brilliance is saying is, Pakad doesn't just mean who's present. Pakad also points to who's absent. If you have, after the Egel Hazahav, after the Golden Calf, if you have a huge plague, right, that's what happened, right? The huge plague. So then you're going to, Pakad who's left, what do you also know from that? Who's, who's not here? How many got schmeist? So... So it's, she's saying this whole book is Pikudim. This whole book is about who's here and who's not. This number that we have right here, how many of these are going to be building the promised land that they get to? How many? None. Two. Well, <laughs> who? Who? 
Who? Who? Oh, who? Joshua and that other guy. The guy who went into the hit, hit, went into the water. <laughs> Noxon. No, who was it? Who's the other guy? It's Joshua and Caleb. Caleb. The two that come back from the scouting incident and give a positive report. Those. Out of all of these Pikudim, all of these countings, crazy amounts of count this, count that, count the Levites, count the Kohanites, count the whatever, the Gershonites, the Merarites, and you're going to see their jobs, and they're going to carry stuff, and they're going to cover stuff, and they're going to haul and schlep. Like, you're counting all of them, and out of all of this counting, who builds Israel? Who enters the Promised Land? Two. So this is not only an accounting of who's present, it's an accounting of... Who's gonna get gone? That's a big number. If you think about it, it's a sad start to the story. Right? Like, all these countings of all these people and assigning them all their roles and all their jobs and all the things that are gonna happen and not one of them is gonna make it. That's not their role. That's not their That's not their job. It's interesting that the two that come, if I remember correctly, were the two who thought it was possible. Correct, Sarah. Correct. So that's, that's a wonderful connection. That, leave it to Sarah Moskowitz to find the silver lining, no matter, 600,000 dead, and Sarah Moskowitz says, but think about the two that got it. So, love that. So, that's an excellent point. I think it goes to Laura's point. The complainers and schleppers and we can't do this and the geschreiers and the oh my godders and the oivesmiers and the gavalts, those, it's not their job to build the promised land. They turn out not to be able to do that job. If that's not the role that they can fulfill. But Yoshua and Kalev, they when they were tested with here's some evidence, yeah, it's gonna be tough. It's not gonna be easy. Right? But they go back and say, but we have God on our side and we can do this. Those are people whose tafkid, whose role is to build something new, something different than what what a slave mentality would have one do or build. Yes? So I think this is a, a dramatic point by Zornberg. Um, go down to, on the words, take a census of the whole Israelite community. You haven't forgotten Se'uet Rosh, right? All right, now go to to count then. To count then is to tally, to tell, to recount those who are present and or those who are absent. So that taking a head count may have its sinister as well as its gratifying significance. In celebrating what is present, one may encounter or even generate absence. Those who are counted in the first sentence are precisely those who are doomed to die in the wilderness. On the words, take a census of the whole Israelite community, lift up the heads. The Midrash comments, why does it say this at the beginning of the book? Why precisely this expression, se'uet rosh, lift up the heads? Like the man who tells the executioner, take off his head. That is, kill him. God speaks in ambiguous language. If they are worthy, let them rise higher. As we see, as Joseph told the butler, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position. But if they are unworthy, they will all die. As we see in the same story, Pharaoh will lift your head from off you and hang you upon the gallows. This expression for counting lends itself to a double meaning, promotion or death. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.